The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. And available Pro Power Onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Ever had to eat a human being? No? Well, then there's uh, one thing you don't have in common with some of the characters from today's tale. The Donner Party. Just under 90 mid-19th century settlers looking to make new lives for themselves in Central California. They left late from Missouri, headed west, not taking off until mid-May. If you've ever played the old Oregon Trail video game, you know that's a no-no. You pick April, not May. Always April. I know the Donner Party took the California Trail for you history buffs, not the Oregon Trail, but May, still too late. I had to play a free online game of the old Oregon Trail last night because this episode's still pretty fun. Holds up. Uh, Lindsay got lost, Penny got sick, and Monroe died. Sorry, Monroe. Uh, but the rest of us, we made it west. And why do we make it west? Because we left in April. It greatly reduced our odds of getting stuck in a mountain snowstorm and having to eat each other to survive. After leaving a full month late, the Donner Party lost another full month heading west on the California Trail, taking a new route across the Great Salt Lake Desert called Hastings Cutoff, which was supposed to shave a few hundred miles off their journey, and it did shave off some miles. It also added uh, several weeks to a month because of treacherous conditions. No wagon road at all in places. A terribly long stretch of waterless salt flats of northern Utah that nearly killed all of their supply animals. And then after all that, things got real ugly. The Donner Party made it to the last big mountain range of the trip, the Sierra Nevadas, a few weeks too late, and they got stuck in one of the heaviest winter snowfalls in the mountain range's recorded history. Blizzard after blizzard after blizzard hit the settlers, and after being snowed in at a rickety, quickly built camp of shitty cabins and shittier tents, Their rations long depleted. The travelers made a few desperate escape attempts that failed miserably. And then some of them made the more desperate decision to eat their dead. And a few made the even more desperate decision to kill fellow party members in order to eat them. Life was hard in the mid-19th century. The journey west especially hard. And it was hardest on the Donner Party. More so than on any other group of pioneers who helped settle what is now the American West of the Continental Divide. Past the Continental Divide. And we dig deep. On this go west, young man, but don't eat anyone, cannibalistic chapter of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck.
Happy Monday, time suckers. Happy 4th July if you're listening on the 4th. Kind of a patriotic episode. Americans doing what they needed to do to make it west and expand our nation. Work can wait. It's time for time suck, time for brain candy. Time for self-improvement without straining your noodle while being entertained. Are you not entertained? So relax, calm the fuck down, and enjoy yourself. And if it sounds a little different today, uh, this is like a little transition week. I'll explain all that next week. Uh, getting back from vacation. Uh, have, some, have some changes here in the Suck Dungeon, where we're recording today. Uh, very excited about, and just uh, easing into it this week. So uh, we'll, we'll get back to a, to a sweeter sound next week if it sounds a little different than you used to this week. I'm Dan Cummins, a.k.a. the Mother Sucker, the Master Sucker. Master Dan the Man Cum is a fourth prophet in Nimrod, Bojangles' long-lost fifth testicle, and lots of other uh, weird shit you wonderful meat sacks uh, uh, refer to me as when you send in your messages. And you are listening to Time Suck. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. Hail Nimrod. Hail slash begone slash man, I think you're very sexy, Lucifina. Uh, Time Suck is brought to you today by Chikatilo's Wrestling Academy. Chikatilo's Wrestling Academy, making soft men hard. At Chikatilo's Rastian Academy, students of all ages, but mostly students younger than 18, instructed in all manner of Chikatilo pelvic thrust-based wrestling techniques. And through Time Suck, you can now purchase a limited edition Chikatilo Rastlin Academy Summer Camp Kit. Only 500 have been made, and when they're gone, they are gone. I'm totally serious. It's finally here. The most ridiculous and awesome Time Suck gear ever created by Danger Brain. Each kit contains a gray Chikatilo Rastlin Academy shirt made out of 250% pure flaccid penis skin. From what animal, you ponder? My fabric contact won't tell me. It may be more legal than ever this time. But it's so soft, you won't even care where it came from. You'll be too happy wearing probably some kind of mammal, definitely some kind of flaccid penis skin. Also, you get a black drawstring making soft men hard camp backpack. We've taken it that far and then farther. You also get a black and white always limp camp water bottle. It's the limpest water bottle on the market. I've never seen one this limp. What's this big deal? Finally, you get an official Chikatilo summer camp wristband. Why a wristband? Because you don't want to hurt yourself. Jerkin so much shemkuk. I, I jerkin corner. I bother no one. It's no, it's no problem. Use for safety and easy cleanup. This is a limited offer. Super fucked up product. The part of me can't believe has actually been created. Only $45 for all that. Link to the store. At timesuckpodcast.com in the episode description and on the app. Okay. While well, the Rasslin Summer Pack is real, Time Suck is not actually brought to you by Chikatilo's Rasslin Academy. It's brought to you today by Amerigas, M80s, bottle rockets, giant fireworks you'd see at a professional 4th of July event that are probably not legal for home use, not sparklers. That's what I think of when I think of Amerigas. Grass fed ground beef, golden retrievers. Daisy Duke shorts, diesel engines, not tofu, not electric bicycles, not pantsuits. These remind me of Amerigas. It's America in gaseous form. So get your grill on this summer with Amerigas Propane Exchange. Do it uh, on the new, free, American-made Weber grill. You've won thanks to Time Suck. You don't have much time. Register to win this grill at mytimesuckgrill.com before the 4th of July or go fuck yourself and move to China. You heard me. You either wave a flag, do some grilling, or you shove it up your ass and burn your goddamn social security number to the ground, you communist fuck. That was way too aggressive. Be gone, Lucifine. I got carried away. But seriously, go to mytimesuckgrill.com before the 4th of July. Enter your name and email address. Pray to Nimrod you win. Pick up some Amerigas right now for the grill you already own. Pick up propane tanks at your local Home Depot, Dollar General store. 
I saw one at a truck stop just west of Missoula on my way to Yellowstone this past week. So many stores nationwide. Winter announced July 6th. That's Friday, July 6th. Link in the episode description. Okay. Thanks, as always, for the reviews and ratings. Continually spreading the suck. I am very thankful. Very happy to be back from vacation. Thanks for uh, helping build this community. Every solid rating review you leave, it does help us so much. Uh, very excited. Flat Earth Tour, coming to Orlando next week. Love that club. It'll be at the Improv, July 12th to the 14th at the Improv. Uh, I believe there's a few tickets left to the live podcast on the 15th with Tom and Dan from A Mediocre Time and then SoCal. Comedy Store in La Jolla, California, July 20th through 22nd. Another great club. Old school, no fucking around. This is how stand-up should be seen club. Dayton, Ohio, Funny Bone, July 27th through the 28th. In August, I'll be at Side Splitters in Tampa, 2nd through the 5th. Palm Beach Improv, 10th through the 12th. Zanies in Chicago, right across the street from the old Second City Theater, 15th through the 18th. Denver Comedy Works, 23rd to the 25th, doing another Lifetime Suck on Sunday the 26th. More tour dates, more live podcasts coming up. Portland, Oregon, Denver, Colorado, Tacoma, Washington, Tampa, Palm Beach, Florida, Hollywood, Huntington Beach. Yeah, so much more. DanCummins.tv. Now let's go 19th century. Let's get cannibalistic. Let's suck on the poor Donner Party who were already sucked on way too hard. And thank you, Space Lizards, for voting in this fantastic topic and sharing it with the rest of us. Hail Nimrod. Life in America in the mid-19th century, right? Uh, it was way better than it had ever been before for the average American, unless you were a slave, uh, but absolutely terrible compared to now. If you were a slave, it was, uh, I'm guessing, just as terrible as ever. I'm sure that goes without saying, but I feel compelled to acknowledge that. In 1842, Massachusetts became the first state to pass laws limiting how many hours a child laborer could be forced to work. <laughs> Check this out. The new laws limited a child under the age of 12's workday to a maximum of 10 hours. <laughs> Good news, little Billy. You only have to work 10 hours a day now. No more double shifts in the coal mine for you, little buddy. We're taking care of the kids now. That's incredible to me. And this limit was only legalized in Massachusetts. New Jersey, fucking same old thing. Back to work, little Billy, you lazy little brat. Lizzie Brad, look at that. Tears in his eyes after only working 14 hours in the slaughterhouse today. God damn. Kids are getting soft nowadays. Kids, man. When I was eight, I worked 27 hours a day, nine days a week, and I never cried once. Of course I didn't cry. I couldn't afford to waste the water and dehydrate myself and possibly stop working. Uh, the first telegraph is sent between Baltimore and Washington, D.C. on May 24th, 1844. No more wagon-carried letters, at least not for that one route. If you had to send a message to any place other than Baltimore or D.C., from any place other than Baltimore or D.C., a horse or boat is probably taking it. Uh, the railroads were still just picking up steam. Pun intended. The rules for what would morph into modern-day baseball are defined in 1845. I know that has no real bearing on today's tale, but I found it interesting. Cities are growing rapidly. The nation's population nearly quadrupled between 1814 and 1860 to over 31 million, swelled by an influx of immigrants Ireland's Great Potato Famine, beginning in 1845, sends over thousands upon thousands and thousands of immigrants to eastern American shores, turning New York City into the nation's largest metropolis. Industrialization is booming. And with all the recent immigrants, jobs are starting to become scarce in certain East Coast cities. It's good land's getting gobbled up, especially if you came to America to farm and to not work in a city. The gold rush a few years later would bring a lot uh, of people looking for fame and fortune west. But even prior to the gold rush, a lot of Americans just saw endless opportunity. And heading out west, you could get some land and build a new life for yourself. You could start over. I have always believed that humans live largely on hope. If future possibilities seem hopeful, life is good. If the future looks grim, 
You just can't see a way to either improve your life or maintain the good life you've got. Feelings of doom and gloom set in. You give someone hope for a better tomorrow, and they can overcome a whole bunch of shit. The Donner Party would head west from Missouri in the spring of 1846. So what the hell uh, was going on in America specifically in 1846? Well, in 1846, the times they were changing big time. January 5th, 1846, the United States House of Representatives changes its policy towards sharing the Oregon Territory with the United Kingdom. They decided to no longer share it. Uh, decided it uh, belonged only to America. I either forgot about that or never knew that was a thing. Uh, various trappers from various nations have been living on a regular basis in the land that now encompasses Oregon, Washington, Idaho, uh, parts of Montana, Wyoming, since at least the 1830s. Uh, Lewis and Clark had originally explored the area for the U.S. government between 1804 and 1806. Lewis and Clark suck for another day for sure. Uh, previous to 1846, the U.K. and the U.S. had shared control of the land since the Treaty of 1818 was signed. That treaty covered a lot of land that had nothing to do with the Northwest, uh, in addition to the Northwest. Basically, it was a treaty that resolved a number of North American territorial boundary issues between the U.K. and the, and the U.S., a, a who-gets-what deal to divide up a lot of land already being lived on by American Indians who have no idea that their land, A, doesn't belong to them anymore, and B, is being governed by people they've never met. Uh, while claiming the Oregon Territory for itself, the United States, uh, one congressman, congressman asserted, had the right of our manifest destiny to spread over our whole continent. Good old manifest destiny, man. A belief that American expansion in the West was both inevitable and justified. Hey, Indians, get ready for a reckoning. God wants us to take your shit, and if you're not cool with that, fuck you and everything you stand for was the gist of uh, Manifest Destiny. The, the decision to get pushy with the UK could have easily led to war with the British. Um, through the Hudson Bay Company at the mouth of the Columbia River, the British had a reasonable claim to the disputed territory of modern-day Washington at the very least. Uh, in contrast, the only part of the Oregon Territory the U.S. could legitimately claim by settlement was the area below the Columbia River. Uh, river now separates Washington Oregon. Above the river, there was only eight recently arrived Americans as recently as 1845. Eight. Eight very brave or very stupid people. I do not have that explorer DNA. Can you imagine going to a new world, meet people from cultures that could be extremely hostile, walk out into unmapped land? I don't like it when my GPS doesn't work. You know, you're going out there with no idea what dangers you might encounter. Fuck that. You find out, you know, you, you find out. You go, you do it first. You find out if it's safe. You report back to me. I'm the guy who only swims in the ocean, and I've only done this a few, a few times for a few seconds at a time, uh, when there are a lot of other people around and they are farther out in the water, and that's very intentional. I, I think that if a shark is going to get somebody that day, I rationalize it's going to be one of those other people surrounding me. I use them as human shields. They don't know it. They're just swimming, enjoying their lives. But in my mind, human shark shields. And, uh, yeah, I don't know if I'll ever be going out there again thanks to that Time Sucker update a few weeks ago when I found out the sharks do, in fact, sometimes bite your ween off. Okay, so despite virtually no American presence, expansionistic 11th President James Polk, he coveted the Oregon Territory up to the 49th parallel. That's the modern-day border with Canada. Polk was, uh, was also on the verge of a war with Mexico in his drive to take that nation's northern provinces, the American Southwest, and he had no desire to fight the British and Mexicans at the same time. So even though some of his fellow Democrats in the Congress, uh, in Congress pushed him to be more aggressive, demanding that Americans control the territory all the way up to the 54th parallel, which is approximately where Edmonton, Alberta is today, he compromised with the British, avoided war, uh, agreed to accept the 49th parallel as a border. The Hudson Bay Company 
already had decided to relocate its principal trading post from the Columbia River area to Vancouver Island, leaving the British with little interest in maintaining their claim to the area. And uh, so that's how we got it. I'm, I'm, I'm glad we didn't take it up to the 54th parallel. I'd have to travel so much farther to find decent poutine. Right? And, if we, and if we had it, Vancouver would just feel like another Seattle. And Seattle's great, but we don't need two of them. We, are, we already have Portland. So in a sense, we already have two Seattles. And easy, easy Portland suckers. I know you're not Seattle Junior. I love you. Seattle and Portland will always uh, hold special places in my heart. The new boundary not only gave the U.S. more territory than it had any legitimate claim to, but it also left Polk free to pursue his next objective, a war with Mexico for control of the Southwest. And the U.S. wouldn't waste much time in kicking off that war. The the Mexican-American War, also known as the Mexican War, broke out a few months later. The first U.S. conflict fought primarily on foreign soil, and it would last until 1848. Prior to this war, Mexico claimed what is now present-day Arizona, Nevada, Utah, New Mexico, portions of present-day Texas, in addition to all of California. Uh, May 8, 1846, the first major conflict of the Mexican War occurs north of the Rio Grande at Palo Alto, Texas. Then U.S. troops under the command of Major General, soon to be 12th President Zachary Taylor, route a larger Mexican force. Zachary had been ordered by President Polk to seize disputed Texas land settled by Mexicans. War declared by the United States against Mexico on May 13th. Now, this is just a little over a decade after that battle of the Alamo fought for control of Texas that we talked about in the Texas Rangers suck a while back. Texas itself barely, uh, had barely gained independence from Mexico back in 1836. And who remember, by the way, that President Polk had done so much, uh, so much shit, uh, done so much of the conquering of what we now know as the American West. Uh, I'll be honest. I literally couldn't have named one thing Polk did prior to this week. Actually, if you asked me to name as many presidents as I could a week ago, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't even remember that Polk was a president. He only served one term. 1845 to 1849, but he got a lot of shit done, man. His vice president was George M. Dallas. Never heard of him. Dallas, Texas, maybe named after him, maybe not. The founder of Dallas, John Neely Bryan, founded the town in 1841 when Dallas was just a Pennsylvania senator, and he didn't uh, give a reason for the naming, or it was lost to history. And I don't think George ever set foot in Texas. But anyway, Polk, born in Pineville, North Carolina, Former congressman from Tennessee lived in Nashville, didn't serve two terms because he declined uh, to attempt re-election. He was in poor health by the end of his presidency and, and died of cholera less than three months uh, after leaving office in 1849 at the age of 53, which, as we find out uh, later in this suck, is a terrible way to go out. Oh, man, it's, it's brutal. He, he'd get us so much land before he died. On June 10th, 1846, the Republic of California declares independence from Mexico. Four days later, the bear flag of the Republic of California is raised at Sonoma, and the U.S. Army heads south to New Mexico. So a whole bunch of Americans are looking to get in on settling these new territories in 1846. Get in while the getting's good. Or as Too Short says, get in where you fit in. Uh, I'm pretty sure Too Short says that. Grab the best pieces of land— uh, you know, get some prime downtown locations while the new towns are being built. And there was so much land to be had. Millions of acres are untouched by Western settlers. And they're able to get land super cheap because of the Distribution Preemption Act of 1841, which recognized squatters' rights, allowed settlers to claim 160 acres of land in the new territory after residing on the property for 14 months. A claimant could purchase the property at, check this out, buck 25 an acre, dollar 25 an acre, even if it's waterfront. That is about $35 an acre in today's dollars. Not going to find decent land that cheap east of the Mississippi in 1847. The average value of land settled in America at that time uh, was already over 10 bucks an acre. So way cheaper, way cheaper 
if you head out west. And, and that, that alone makes me understand a lot of the drive to head west. Man, imagine if you're living in Boston or Philadelphia. You and your kids, even the ones who should be in grade school, are working 12, 14 hours a day for next to nothing in some shithole factory making, I don't know, shitholes, whatever shithole factories make. Sleeping in some slum apartment with 37 members of your immediate family. But if you can make a west, you could possibly grow some crops and sell them. You could, you know, you could maybe have a little store of your own, built with your own hands. You could have over 100 acres to yourself. You know, you, well, you can have it to yourself along with the 19 kids you and your wife uh, or wives have had to actually work the land. But still, you know, and you get to live there for free. Takes you, if it takes you a few years to save up that buck 25 an acre, so be. You still get to live there. You're still not paying rent. You're not paying a mortgage. Buy it a little at a time. Whatever. You don't have much, you know, to lose. Your life is already shitty. So the government's practically giving land away in the West because there's almost no one out there. Remember, in 1845, eight American citizens in what is now Washington State. If they're going to hold their newly claimed territory, they desperately need to populate it with American citizens. So people start heading west for new opportunities. Little Billy won't have to work 12 hours a day instead of going to fourth grade. Now little Billy can work 12 hours a day on his pappy's farm and, and still not go to school, actually. But, you know, whatever. Hooray. After the Lewis and Clark expedition, the Pacific Fur Company was the next to head west in 1810. Company employees, through a lot of trial and error, figured out the beginnings of what would become the Oregon Trail. And then due to the War of 1812 with Britain, a lot of what they discovered would be kind of put on hold, put on pause for about a decade. And then missionaries started heading out looking to convert American Indians to Christianity. Former trappers head out uh, looking to live on their own out in the wilderness, you know, start showing up in the Oregon Territory around 1824. And by the early 1840s, early pioneers began following fur trapper routes. The Oregon Trail was truly established, ending at either Oregon City, now a suburb of Portland or Fort Astoria, all in the Willamette Valley. You know, present-day Astoria. Uh, yeah, the Oregon. Uh, that's actually on the uh, Oregon coast, near the mouth of the Columbia River, where Goonies was filmed. A lot of random trivia. You know, Goonies, got to love that. But right now, they got to do what's right for them because it's their time. Their time up there. Down here, it's our time. It's our time down here. A uh, major stop on the trail before Oregon City was Fort Hall, Idaho, near Pocatello. Established in 1837 by the Hudson Bay Company. My maternal grandfather's last name is Hall, and because his grandparents uh, were homesteaders in central Idaho, I always thought there was a good chance I was related to the Halls of Fort Hall. No. Uh, the fort was named after some dude named Henry Hall, partner of the Boston firm Tucker and Williams and Henry Hall, uh, who had a stake in the trading company. So, damn it. You know, sometimes you learn, sometimes you learn things that you're bummed out by. Uh, by 1843, traffic really picked up along this trail and what was later dubbed the Great Migration of 1843. Somewhere between 700 and 1,000 Americans headed west that spring. Uh, these settlers had it extra rough because the uh, wagon trail wasn't quite finished. They'd have to dissemble their wagons near present-day the Dalles, Oregon, because there was, still wasn't a consistent road. And by road, I mean a flat area of dirt wide enough to fit a wagon. You know, made it all the way to Oregon City in the Willamette Valley. By 1846, the Barlow Road was finally completed, and, and now you could take a wagon all the way from Missouri to Oregon, about 2,000 miles of trail. And how long did this journey take? It took between four to six months. The Great Immigration of 1843 left Elm Grove, Missouri, just outside of Independence, uh, just outside of Kansas City on May 22nd, 1843, and made it to the end of the trail five months later. And what a journey it was. Immigrants had to sell their homes, businesses, any possessions they couldn't take with them. They also had to purchase hundreds of pounds of supplies, including flour, sugar, bacon, coffee, salt, rifles and ammunition, thick slabs of smoked bacon would keep as long as it was protected from the hot temperatures. One way to preserve bacon was to pack it inside a barrel of bran. Uh, also, eggs could protect it by uh, you could protect eggs, excuse me, by, by packing them in barrels of cornmeal. 
And as the eggs were used up, the meal was used to make bread. Coffee was another important staple. Uh, they needed a covered wagon, a covered wagon, excuse me, uh, strong, strong enough to withstand the elements, yet small and light enough for a team of oxen or mules to pull it day after day, week after week, month after month. Some nice wagons had rudimentary uh, beds inside. Other pioneers slept under blankets in a tent or under the wagon itself. Sleeping bags, you know, and blow-up mattresses didn't exist yet. And sadly, a lot of pioneers died in their sleep. Most likely from broken hearts, and definitely because they weren't sleeping on Lisa motherfucking mattresses. Yes, today's Time Suck is brought to you by Lisa Mattress. Celebrate the 4th of July in style with the Prem Foam Mattress. Designed, assembled, and manufactured right here in the U.S. of A. Lisa leveraged 30 years plus of experience and hundreds of hours of testing to develop the perfect mattress for all body shapes and sleeping styles. It's the best After a week in Yellowstone, I may actually have sex with my Lisa mattress. That's how happy I am to see it again. For the record, Lisa does not advocate fucking their mattresses at all. That's my thing. Uh, They do heavily endorse getting your Z's on it. Lisa's mission is to provide a better night's sleep for everybody. Through their 110 program, they donate one mattress for every 10 they sell. I know you time suckers know that now, but do you know they've donated more than 26,000 mattresses and counting? Bad ass. Lisa strives to leave the world better than they found it, which oh, I love that so much. And, and that doesn't stop with mattress, do, uh, mattress donations. Together with the Arbor Day Foundation, they plant one tree for every mattress they sell. They're committed to planting a million trees by 2025. They're a great company, have a great product. Uh, I had a lumbar uh, microdisectomy after crushing a disc when I was 28. And a bad mattress jacks up my back. Uh, gives me the gift of sciatica, which just keeps on giving pain. Not fun. No Miyamo. Uh, never have that problem with Lisa. No back uh, issues. No sciatica. I mean, for real. It's wonderful. So take advantage of the sale. Lisa, July 4th mattress sale will not last long. Right now, you can get $160 off a Lisa mattress at lisa.com slash timesuck. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash timesuck for $160 off. Lisa, a better place to sleep. If only the Donner Party had a chance to fill their wagons with Lisa mattresses, they probably would have made better decisions thanks to better rest, and they wouldn't have had to eat each other. And where were the beds they did have? Uh, in the wagons, you know, if they even had one. Most of the wagons were about 6 feet wide, 12 feet long. They're usually made of seasoned hardwood covered with large oiled canvas stretched over wood frames. In addition to food supplies, the wagons were laden with uh, water barrels, tar buckets, extra wheels and axles. Families who owned cattle would bring them along to kickstart their new ranch out west, eat along the way. Nothing like making you uh, making your dinner, walk alongside the trail beside you, right? <laughs> Some families also brought along a milk cow or two, bring your own milk, butter, bring your own cheese factory along for the journey. It's not like you were going to hit up a travel center or find a 7-Eleven. Not going to be able to grab a, a late night ham and cheese hot pocket if you get hungry before bed. No matter how you prepared, the journey was still dangerous. Uh, man, about one in 10 of the roughly 400,000 settlers who were heading west on the trail, did not make it. Most died of diseases such as dysentery, cholera, smallpox, or flu, uh, or of accidents caused uh, by inexperience, exhaustion, and carelessness. Uh, It was also not uncommon for people to be crushed beneath wagon wheels, which sounds fucking terrible, or accidentally shot to death. A lot of people drowned during perilous river crossings. Travelers travelers often left uh, warning messages to those journeying behind them, if there was an outbreak of disease, bad water, or hostile American Indians nearby, usually those warnings tended to come, uh, I would say, later than 1846 when there's more people traveling. As more and more uh, settlers headed west, the Oregon Trail became a well-beaten path in an abandoned junkyard of surrendered possessions. 
It also became a graveyard for tens of thousands of pioneer men, women, and children, and countless livestock. Let's talk about how some of those people died before we dig into uh, how the Donners traveled and, you know, also died. Uh, Historians record about 360 immigrant deaths at the hands of American Indians from 1840 to 1860 in various skirmishes. And uh, uh, in August 1854, Shoshone Indians ambushed and killed 18 of the 20 members of the Ward family immigrant party, attacking them uh, on the Oregon Trail in western Idaho. Only two young boys survived. The killings led to the U.S. military uh, abandoning several of the forts they built along the trail in favor of using military escorts for future wagon trains. The next year, a U.S. Army party set out to get revenge and eventually killed or arrested over a dozen tribesmen, many of whom had nothing to do with the killings. Tough luck for those dudes, man. Look, I, look, I know you had nothing to do with killing that family, but you do look kind of like the dudes who killed the family. So we're going to have to cut you down. Someone's going to pay today, and it's not going to be us. A uh, few settlers were killed by bank robbers. Using a new branch of the Oregon Trail to flee eastward, a gold-robbing gang led by brothers Henry and Jack Triscuit arrived at the mining town of Sailors Diggins, Oregon in August 1852. Later called Waldo, now a ghost town, Sailor Diggins was one of the biggest cities in the territory. It's also a drunk, violent, and lawless town. The Triscuit gang headed right for a saloon, and after a long day of drinking, one of the men randomly pulled out a gun and shot a passerby dead. Utter carnage ensued, and the Triscuit gang ended up shooting 17 more people dead. Good God. I have to do a suck on the Triscuit gang, man, including several women and a child. 17. Holy shit. What a way to die if you just barely made it to Oregon. Right? Five, six months of horrific travel. You already lost grandma to being too old for the wagon train. Little Billy just passed away from cholera. And then you get, then you get shot up by some drunk, bank-robbing assholes. What a bunch of bullshit. And cholera, man, that was a big one. That was a big killer. One of the biggest dangers facing travelers on the Oregon Trail, right? We already talked about how it got poke. Cholera was a waterborne disease that could cause death within a day, even in the hardiest, hardiest of souls. Shit, man. Sometimes if you were already weakened from the hardships of travel, you could catch some cholera at breakfast and you could be dead by lunch. Uh, trail stories are full of uh, cholera deaths, uh, with, the, with most taking place on the Platte River in Nebraska and Wyoming, because most of the river was brackish. Wagon trains would camp at the fresh uh, streams draining in and out of the river, and these streams were prone to cholera as they were used by hordes of travelers for bathing and camping, and there was no natural filtration. I'm sure the people were just peeing and taking shits in the creeks. Maybe not in the creeks. That's probably kind of weird. You probably take a shit in the woods. But there's probably a couple guys who wanted to take a shit in the creek, and they did it. There's no law against it out there. Thousands died agonizing deaths due to Platte River cholera, man. Uh, most were dumped in unmarked, forgotten graves. And, and how does this disease... It's all been uh, eliminated in the United States since 1911, thanks to modern sewage and water treatment. How does it kill you? Basically, you shit yourself to death. Seriously. Cholera-related diarrhea can hit very quickly after the bacteria enters your system, and you can shit out a quart of pale, milky-white cholera fluid an hour. And this butthole vomiting, made even worse by the constant face-mouth vomiting you are also doing. You can vomit from both face and butthole. Nonstop for hours. Vomiting, dry heaving, abdominal muscles, and cramping agony as you dehydrate. All of this can lead to severe dehydration within hours. It's like a vicious hangover that kills you. Yeah, and then it just keeps getting worse. As dehydration uh, sets in, your electrolyte levels are quickly thrown off. Uh, Electrolyte imbalance can lead to severe muscle cramps brought on by the rapid loss of sodium, chloride, potassium. Have you ever been woken up in the middle of the night by a horrific calf muscle cramp? Well, now imagine both calves and hamstrings. And lats, pecs, etc., 
right? All cramping like that. The worst cramps you've ever had as you start to throw up blood because you've torn your esophagus lining from continual violent vomiting. And in some cases, you've also quite literally shit off your butthole. Pioneers would shit so hard for so long their anus would dislodge from their digestive tract. There are numerous records of people hearing a popping sound, like a champagne bottle losing its cork, as someone's butthole was violently shot off of their colon. It was common enough to earn the nickname McGill's Pop, after one unfortunate settler, Donovan McGill, uh, you know, uh, had his butthole pop off, and it was, it was heard and witnessed by a large group of other wagon train travelers. Careful with the water, Abe. I don't want to hear McGill's Pop later this afternoon. And no, you're not long for this world. Now, I'm kidding about McGill's pop. To my, to my knowledge, you cannot actually shut off your own butthole. But with cholera, I bet you felt like you were about to. Following the diarrhea and vomiting and dehydration, a massive cramp became severe uh, hypovolemic shock, which can cause death in a matter of minutes. You can also experience seizures, an altered state of consciousness, fall into a coma before death. It was a terrible way to go. And speaking of an altered state of consciousness, check out this particular trail death. Uh, long, hard journeys on the trail often led, uh, you know, left pioneers in fragile mental states, which could lead to mental breakdowns. One tragic example involved westward traveler Elizabeth Markham. One day, while traveling along the Snake River somewhere around Idaho, Markham decided uh, she was done traveling. She declared to her husband Samuel and her five kids that she will not be proceeding any further. No mas. Her husband was forced to take the wagons and the kids, leave her behind, though he later sent their teenage son John back to retrieve her, and then shit gets real dark. Elizabeth later returns on her own, tells Samuel that she had to beat John to death with the rock, her own son. You know, as mothers do when they've had enough wagon training and their son tries to get them to do more wagon training. Fair is fair. Frontier justice. Samuel raced back to rescue his son, John, promptly realized his wife had set fire to the family supply wagon. And he finds her standing in the firelight with a demented expression while other pioneers are putting the fire out. Well, accounts differ as to what happened to John. Some saying he was never harmed. Others saying that he was beaten, but he lived. And then, of course, others saying that he died. Amazingly, Samuel and Elizabeth Markham, along with the kids, uh, continue on to Oregon after that. They have another child, Edwin, who would become an acclaimed American poet. So who knows about that account? Uh, a little out there. But uh, I don't know if I believe it. This, this one might be a little bit urban legendist. You know? However, a poet named Edwin Markham uh, really was born in Oregon City, 1852. Uh, from 1923 to 1931, to be the poet laureate of Oregon. His parents did divorce shortly after his birth, but his biography does not include his mom beating his older brother to death with a rock. I think that would be likely to show up. Or would it? Or would it? I mean, I guess that would be a really inappropriate thing to add to a biography, you know? Tonight, we honor Edwin Markham, a man whose poem, Lincoln, a man of the people, was selected to be read at the dedication of the Lincoln Memorial. A man who wrote letters to and received letters from correspondents such as Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Alistair Crowley, Jack London, Ambrose Pierce. He was a teacher, an artist, an American of renown. And also years before he was born, his mother beat his older brother to death with a rock while traveling along the Oregon Trail after going batshit crazy. After this terrible death beating and subsequent burning of the family wagon, his father and mother were able to work things out for a time and go back to making whoopee, which did result in Edwin's birth. I don't know how you, how you really kind of work that in. Uh, there were also, as I said, a fair amount of random trail mishaps. Western historian John Unruh recorded one such death in plain terms, saying, One inebriated, uh, one inebriated 1853 immigrant misjudged rain-swollen Buffalo Creek, drove his wagon in, and was never seen again. That is a fucking hilarious destiny. Uh, hey, John, you've had a lot of whiskey today, buddy. Why don't you sleep it off? Why don't you try again tomorrow? 
I'm good. I ain't no damn river cave John Wessler from Crawlers of Whiskey or no. All, all right, John. Think maybe you want to try the shallow area about 50 yards below the deep pool you're driving towards. Don't boss me, McThool. If any man can cross a river or whatever and he ever he pleases, it's John Drowned. Uh, there were also a number of firearm accidents. Fear of American Indian attacks led settlers to load up with a staggering amount of firepower. One 1846 Oregon Trail Expedition diary describes their 72 wagon train party as carrying 260 pistols and rifles, nearly a full ton of lead, <laughs> and over 1,000 pounds of gunpowder, which would be great for a trained militia. However, many of the travelers had little or no training and experience with firearms, leading to countless people who either shot themselves or others by accident. Now, to be fair, a lot of people who didn't head west also died similar deaths. You know, people died horribly and often in mid-19th century America. Life expectancy was only roughly 37. I mean, think about the Doc Holliday and Billy the Kid six, uh, Billy the Kid sucks we've already done. How many people died of tuberculosis in those tales? I feel like every third person was getting, you know, killed by consumption. It's getting everybody. And that was just one of the many incurable diseases back then, not counting all the heart attacks, random accidents, the doctors, the EMTs. You know, could save people from today that they couldn't back then. We're, we're decades away from penicillin still. Hard to say just exactly how shitty life was even back then because there aren't good records of who died of what and how often. Because although a census did exist, following through with registration and record keeping was left to local governments. And most of them weren't very good at doing that. You know, most of the towns were pretty newly formed. They had better shit to do, more pressing matters to deal with and keeping track of who died of what. So, uh, so that gives us some solid context of the journey west in mid-19th century America. Now, let's look directly at the journey of the, uh, journey of the Donner Party and hop into today's Time Suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck timeline. So May 12, 1846, the Donner Party begins their journey. A group of nine wagons containing 32 members of the Reed and Donner families and their employees head out from Independence, Missouri. Now, the leader of the party is George Donner, a 60-year-old pervert who had brought two 10-year-old girls he intended to marry once he made it across the Continental Divide and away from America's rigid 19th century morality laws. When things got rough later, Donner would eat one of his intended brides in the Sierra Nevada mountains and he would marry the other. They'd have a child together, a woman who would be, um, become married herself, take the name Susan Parton. Uh, great, great, great grandmother of country singer Dolly Parton, and that is a crock of horse shit. Uh, George Donner was a six-year-old moderately successful farmer who had been born in North Carolina, then lived in Kentucky, Indiana, Texas, and Illinois. He has nothing to do with Dolly Parton. Uh, with him were his 44-year-old wife, Tamsin, and their three daughters, and also George's two daughters from a previous marriage. George's 56-year-old brother, his younger brother, Jacob, also joins the party with his wife, Elizabeth, two teenage stepsons. Five kids under nine, and a variety of employees uh, who they'd hire to help them on the journey. A lot of them, they'd have a lot of teamsters, actually, early teamsters to help travel them out there. Uh, and that shit is so crazy to me, man. I, I cannot imagine wanting to head west in a wagon at the age of 56 or 60. I can't imagine now at 41. No way. Maybe at 30. For sure at 21, but hell no at 60. Oh, farming must not have been going all that well for George. He, he and his brother must have really needed the money. Uh Apparently, though, they, they actually really didn't. They just possessed adventurous spirits. You know, they, they hoped to make more money, sure, but mostly they just really believed in that whole manifest destiny thing. They really thought it was their duty. It was their fate to help expand America, make, make names for themselves out west. No way I could do that. 
Uh, I just finished up, you know, research this uh, this episode the day after getting back from a week long vacation Yellowstone National Park. You know, I spent six nights in a tent, one tent with my wife Lindsay, two dogs, Penny and Ginger, two kids, Kyler Monroe. We got hailed on a few times. Temperature dropped into the 30s a few nights because we we camped around 7,800 feet elevation and near the uh, the bank of Lake Yellowstone. And while I had a great time, I was ready to be done when it was over. We actually had two more nights reserved, and we just bailed. I didn't catch any fish. We saw plenty of critters and geysers. Fuck it. Let's get out. Let's get back to our real beds, uh, and let's get back to a place not infested by mosquitoes. Lindsay literally got bit over 50 times. 50. Over, I, I don't remember the exact count. I remember it was over 50. Queen of the suck got eaten alive. We slept on air mattresses. I was, uh, I was able to refill them. And they, you know, they got too low using electricity from the F-150. We were able to charge our cell phones. You know, the kids watched a few movies off an iPad. We used a quick start fire starting bricks. You know, we had pre-cut kindling. We were able to buy for a few bucks from camp. Get the fire gun charcoal lighter. You know, if the wood got damp. I had a two-burner Coleman campfire propane grill for cooking. We had LED he- headlamps to see with. We, we were 150 feet from a heated bathroom. You know, we were a 10-minute drive from warm showers. We didn't have Wi-Fi, didn't have cell coverage, didn't have a heater. We weren't sleeping in a bed in an RV or a camper. And so what we were doing is now considered roughing it. We were technically roughing it. And at 41 years old, by the end, I thought there's no fucking way I'm spending another full week in a tent ever in my life. <laughs> my back and hips ache from crashing on the air mattress. I'd lay in bed. When I woke up to go to the bathroom at like 4 a.m., I'd just keep laying there trying to somehow f- fall back asleep even though I had to pee so bad because I didn't want to walk 150 feet through the cold to take a piss in a heated bathroom. Uh, I made a decision that if we ever go on a big trip again, we're getting a camper and RV. We're going to have running water, heater in a bed. We can do a tent for a night or two, but that's it. And that was just one week, one in a national park campground where there was a supply store a half-mile walk away. If I really wanted to, I could have walked over and threw a hot pocket in the microwave, I could have had a little microwavable pizza, burrito, could have had a Lunchable, pre-made sandwich, any number of candies or pastries within minutes, anytime, seven days a week between 7 a.m. and 9.30 p.m. And that's just at the one store. And here's George and Jacob Donner taking their families essentially on the worst fucking camping trip you can imagine. One that is supposed to last for around five months. <laughs> the day, basically, they did do like one of the worst camping trips in history, but it's all said and done. And they're doing it at the age of 16, 56. Jacob at 56 also has two teenagers and five kids under the age of nine. What a nightmare. I love my two kids, but I also love having my sperm tubes tied up so I can never have another one. Right? These guys, they have no battery-powered lights, no Coleman propane grills, no pre-cut kindling, no cooler full of cold beer and beef. They sure as shit don't have an F-150, no air mattresses. And unlike me, who was in one place the whole time, they have to set up camp and break it down almost every damn day. That's hard work. Man, fuck the past. It would be so hard not to throw yourself off a cliff if you ended up getting sent back into the 1800s, right? <laughs> Compared to what we know now, it just sounds so shitty. Ah, along with the Donners were the Reeds. The head of the Reeds clan was James F. Reed, 45-year-old native of present-day Northern Ireland who'd settled in Illinois in 1831. He'd work as a store clerk, a miner, various other odd jobs, even fought alongside future president Abraham Lincoln. His name rings a bell. Uh, in the Black Hawk War. A brief set of skirmishes with American Indians that lasted a few months took place in the Illinois and Michigan territories, took the lives of 77 settlers and soldiers and uh, over 1,000 American Indians. Lincoln didn't actually fight in these skirmishes, uh, but he did serve in the military while they occurred. Uh, James was accompanied by his wife, Margaret, 13-year-old stepdaughter, Virginia, three kids under nine. Uh, His daughter, uh, Martha Jane and Sarah Keyes, a little older daughters, uh, Margaret's seven-year-old mother, uh, who was uh, in the advanced stages of consumption, died on May 28th. First death of the Donner Party trip. She was buried by the side of the trail. 
That, that probably didn't sting too bad for James. He's probably looking forward to a five-ish, you know, month trip with his family, but not looking forward to spending that much time in the wagon with his mother-in-law. If anything, her early death was a good omen for him. Uh, in addition to leaving financial worries behind, uh, his business weren't doing well. Reed hoped that California's climb would help Margaret, who had long suffered from ill health. The Reeds hired three men to drive the ox teams. Another was a handyman. Handyman's sister came along as a cook. And these families started this, you know, their big journey dangerously late into the season, a month late, as I said before, man. They were the last major pioneer train of 1846 to head west, and their late start would partly sow the seeds of their gruesome doom. Within a week of leaving Independence, the Reeds and the Donners joined up with a group of 50 wagons carrying a variety of other families nominally led by William H. Russell. Several other families would join along the way, like Lavina Murphy, 37-year-old widow who had seven kids. Her oldest two kids had families of their own also coming along. Can you imagine that? I mean, truly. Can you imagine being – you're 37 and you're already the matriarch of a new, <laughs> numerous branches of your family tree. You have no spouse to help you. You're heading on a fucking five-month wagon train journey relying on your son-in-laws and your kids to help set up and break down camp every day for months on end. Again, life just comparatively terrible in the 1800s. Travel on the California Trail followed a tight schedule. Travelers needed to head west late enough in the spring for there to be grass available for their pack animals, but also early enough so they could cross the treacherous western mountain passes before winter. The sweet spot for departure was usually sometime in mid to late April. Just like in the Oregon Trail game, man. I, uh, I'd say I, I can't believe they started so late, but honestly, it does sound like something I would do. You know, I'd probably just be like, yeah, nah, we'll be fine. Yeah, so what? We hit a little snow. A little snow never killed anybody. What, look, worst case, we hold up in a cabin, we eat each other. We'll be fine. And, uh, <laughs> and yes, even though I've been speaking mostly about the Oregon Trail up until now, uh, because we have more data available regarding the westward uh, trail of the Oregon Trail. The Donner Party, again, not heading to Oregon. They were heading to California. Uh, as early as 1841, pioneers deviating south off the Oregon Trail uh, would head to north-central California along some new trails. wouldn't be until 1844 that anyone would make it to California with their actual wagons. Uh, according to historians, crossing the treacherous Sierra Nevada mountain range with wagons was, quote, a motherfucker. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, the Stevens-Murphy party had finally proved that wagons could successfully negotiate the rugged Sierra Nevadas the Donners would try and get over in 1844, although the company barely averted disaster after almost becoming snowbound, snowbound themselves before reaching the safety of the San Joaquin Valley. Uh, by 1845, the trail was an established migration route. And where did this trail go? Well, it started in Missouri and initially was part of the Oregon Trail following the Platte, you might shit yourself to death with Colorado River, and then at Fort Bridger, cut off from the Oregon Trail. Fort Bridger being a supply station run by Jim Bridger and Pierre Lewis. Jim Bridger, might, might recognize his name, famous frontiersman, mountaineer, trapper, army scout, guide, possible topic for a future suck. If you watch the Revenant movie, that movie with DiCaprio, where he gets attacked by a bear and he's left for dead, you know, uh, by some men on an expedition with him. The teen who was trying to take care of him uh, in that movie is called Bridger. That's that's Jim Bridger. That's a young Jim Bridger. He really did as a, as a teen uh, leave a man named Hugh Glass behind after volunteering to stay behind with him. A guy who was torn up by a bear who did live and come back and find everybody. A little bonus trivia there for you time suckers. Fort Bridger was located on the Black Forks of the Green River, southwestern Wyoming, 115 miles from Salt Lake City, Utah. At this point, you could travel northwest to Fort Hall, you know, in present-day Idaho, following the Oregon Trail, or you could head west towards the area around present-day Salt Lake City. Uh, Jim Bridger, by the way, first American white explorer uh, who had been to the salt to make it to the Salt Lake area? He did it around 1825. A little, little more random trivia. Brigham Young, the early Mormon, would found the city the following year in 1847. So Army surveyors and 
It, they've been surveying it since about 1843. So, you know, Salt Lake City kind of area just barely getting going in 1846. While there would be more choices later, in 1846, the California Trail split off into three forks from Fort Bridger, the southern route uh, to the Spanish Trail that goes on to Southern California. Then there was Hensley's Salt Lake Cutoff and then the soon-to-be discredited Hastings Cutoff that helped doom the Donner Party that would, uh, you know, uh, cross the salt flats north of the Great Salt Lake. Hastings Cutoff would take you north of Salt Lake City over the Sierra, Sierra Nevada Mountains to the San Francisco Bay, but Hastings had not traveled any part of this proposed shortcut until early 1846 on a trip from California to Fort Bridger. Only about 75 wagons had used this route <clears throat> excuse me, prior to the Donner Party. It wasn't some well-worn, easy-to-see trail like, like the much more established Oregon Trail was. It wasn't as established as the Spanish Trail or Hensley's Cutoff, and by 1850, most of this new trail would be abandoned by later pioneers getting in on the upcoming gold rush, and it was abandoned because it was a shitty trail. Parts of the Hastings Cutoff Trail would later be incorporated into the Mormon Trail, getting early Mormon settlers to Salt Lake City, but the trail west of Salt Lake City was shit. So why did the Donner Party take it? Probably because they were dumb. They were very not smart. And why weren't they smart? Because they had enrolled in the Great Courses Plus. Time Suck is brought to you today by the Great Courses Plus. And the Great Courses Plus has an awesome 31-minute lecture about the Oregon Trail. Taught by Professor Patrick N. Allett, part of the American West History, Myth, and Legacy course. Uh, Professor Allett, historian who teaches at Emory University in Atlanta, written several great books. I learned from Allett, I watched this, uh, that part of the appeal of the Willamette Valley in Oregon, making it out there, was that they didn't have an environment conducive to malaria. Another disease they had to worry about back then. I guess malaria was rampant at that time in the Mississippi Valley. I I had no idea that in the 1840s, people were still getting malaria in Mississippi or anywhere in the United States. Man, I I get that appeal. I get the appeal of less malaria. I I personally feel that less is always better when it comes to not getting malaria. Uh, It's a great presentation. You know, and it can give you what I can. It can give you lots of maps and pictures of what we're talking about today. More information, deeper dives. That's what the Great Courses Plus is all about. So much brain candy. It's, it's tailored for time suckers. The Great Courses Plus gives you unlimited access to learn from award-winning experts from uh, virtually anything that interests you. Thousands of lectures to enjoy on a variety of topics like human behavior, the universe, even chess and photography all over the place. Watch and listen to them anytime, anywhere with the Great Courses Plus app. Another fascinating course I like is called Forensic History, Crimes, Frauds, and Scandals. Uh, Forensic History explores some of the most fascinating investigations throughout history using modern tools of forensic science to help solve the mysteries that puzzle detectives like, you know, Jack the Ripper, you know, like we talked about that. And Jack the Ripper suck, obviously. Black Dahlia, the Tylenol murders, more. Uh, With the serial killers and crimes we talked about, Forensic History is a great addition for your growing mind. Nice backdrop to advancements that led to the capture of the Golden State Killer, for one thing. And right now, you can get a special limited time offer. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck to get a free month of unlimited access to all their lectures. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. Start your free one-month trial today. Link in today's episode description or just push the Great Courses Plus button on the Timesuck app. Uh, but seriously, why did the Donner Party take the cut- Hastings cutoff? Well, uh, you know, a, a brand new trail. Far more unknown than the rest of the California Trail. Well, because they started late and they were desperate for a shortcut. Uh, and, and more on that in a bit. By June 16th, the company had traveled 450 miles with 200 miles to go before Fort Laramie, Wyoming. Uh, Fort Laramie, Fort Laramie, excuse me, 210 miles north of Denver, less than 50 miles west of the Nebraska border. You might recognize that from the Oregon Trail game. Uh, they had been delayed by rain and a rising river, but Tamson Donner wrote to a friend in Springfield saying, Indeed, If I do not experience something far worse than I have yet done, I shall say that the trouble is all in getting started. (laughs) 
Yeah, well, it wouldn't work out that way for her later. Uh, young Virginia Reed, James' 13-year-old stepdaughter, recalled years later that during the first part of the trip, she was perfectly happy. Uh, she does not mention wanting to eat anybody at that point. No talk at all of who looked the tastiest. No mention of wanting to load up on barbecue sauce at the next stop because one of the Reed kids looked, quote, ripe for roasting. No one in the party had said anything at this point from what I can gather like, hey, James, if you had to guess which one of your kids would be most delicious for a pot roast, who would it be? Uh, on July 20th at the Little Sandy River, most of the wagon train opted to follow the established trail via Fort Hall in present-day Idaho that would skip present-day Utah, drop down through northern Nevada, and cross the Sierra Nevadas a little further north of where the Donner Party would cross. Uh, months later, when they found out what happened to the Donners, they must have been super happy with his choice. They made it west just fine. And then the smaller group, uh, you know, opted uh, to head to Fort Bridger with George Donner as their leader. The Reed family also opted for Fort Bridger. This group would become to known, come to be known, excuse me, as the Donner Party. Unfortunately, no one in this party had any real pioneering skills, and, and they would definitely not be happy with their choice a few months later. July 28, 1846, the Donner Party makes it to Fort Bridger. Right before the Donner Party arrives, Lansford Hastings, Hastings, excuse me, creator of the Hastings Cutoff, had left uh, leading 40 wagons to head back over his new cutoff. He left some guidebooks to Fort Bridger, explaining that his route was a smooth trip, devoid of rugged country and hostile American Indians, and that it would shorten the remaining journey by 350 miles. Water would be easy to find along the way, although a couple days uh, crossing the 30. 40-mile dry lake bed would be necessary. So easy peasy, right? James Reed thought so. James Reed was very impressed with the information Hastings had left behind, and he strongly advocated for the Hastings cutoff. He convinced George Donner to take the cutoff, which he may not have done uh, had he read a warning left for him and the Donner Party by journalist Edwin Bryant. Bryant, who would later become an early mayor of San Francisco, the man Bryant Street is named after, had reached a portion of the Hastings cutoff a week ahead of the Donner Party, and was concerned that it would be too difficult for the wagons in the Donner group, especially with so many women and children. He left letters warning several members of the group to not take the shortcut at Fort Bridger. And for some reason, maybe just because of simple forgetfulness, Jim Bridger never gave those letters to the Donner party. Bryant would later testify that he felt Bridger deliberately concealed the letters. Why he would conceal them is not clear. Uh, I can only imagine how sick Bryant must have felt when he heard what happened to the group he tried to warn. On July 31st, 1846, the party left Fort Bridger after four days of rest and wagon repairs, 11 days behind the leading Harlan Young group that uh, Hastings was leading. Donner hired a replacement driver. The company was joined by a few additional members camped around the fort. Right? Sometimes people just hang around these forts along the way for some reason. Maybe their, their party, something broke down. You know, they needed to join in with somebody else. Maybe they're just, you know, some people trying to get work, trying to hook up with a new party. The party turned south to follow the Hastings cutoff. Within days, they, followed, uh, they found the train to be far more difficult than Hastings described. They had to lock the wheels of their wagons off and to prevent them from just rolling uh, away from them down steep inclines. Several years of traffic on the main Oregon Trail had left an easy and obvious path, whereas the cutoff, the Hastings cutoff, was much more difficult to find. Uh, Hastings did try to help. He wrote letters, you know, uh, giving directions that he would stick to trees along the way. On August 6th, the party found a letter from Hastings advising them to stop until he could show them an alternative route, uh, you know, the, taken by the uh, Harlan Young party he was leading. Basically, his letter was like, um, yeah, you guys, I kind of fucked up when I told you guys to come down my new trail. <laughs> LOL. Uh, I guess I didn't notice how it's actually not good. For wagons at all, so FML, sorry about that, but found a new shortcut, OMG, it's going to be fine, YOLO. Uh, James Reed, two other men ride ahead to get to Hastings. They encounter exceedingly difficult canyons where boulders had to be moved, walls cut off precariously to rivers below. 
a route very likely to break wagons. Hastings had offered in his letter to guide the Donner Party around the more difficult areas, but he rode back only partway, indicating the general direction to follow. He left another note saying as much that the guys who rode ahead found. Well, I guess it said something probably like, OMG, guys, remember when I said I would come back to lead you? Well, change your plans. LOL. <laughs> R-O-T-F-L. Turns out I have my hands pretty full with the party I'm already leading down a horrible trail. And we're pretty worried about not making it to the mountains in time and dying and stuff. So, you know, just follow the instructions in my notes and all should be good. LOL. YOLO. Thumbs up emoticon. Fist emoticon. Uh, Hastings' instruction had been to avoid a portion of the trail that went through Weber Canyon. So the group had a choice. Turn back, rejoin the traditional trail, follow the tracks left by the party Hastings were leading through the difficult train of Weber, you know, Weber Canyon, or forge their own new trail in the direct general direction that Hastings recommended. And they decided to pick the new route Hastings recommended. Because, again, their guys also rode ahead and saw that it was pretty terrible. Uh, and the decision they made, though, was also terrible because there's not, now literally no trail at all. So I guess, you know, you're picking between two shitty choices. Uh, who's to say which one was going to be worse in the end, but their choice was not good. The progress slowed to about a mile and a half a day because all the able-bodied men from the party were required to clear brush, fall trees, heave rocks to make room for the wagons. Man, having to build your own road as you travel. What a terrible way to travel. Stupid wagons, man. If only the pioneers could have used monster trucks, everything would have been so much easier. So many more mullets on the trail. Uh, they slowly made it their way their way through the uh, Wasatch Mountains, a 160-mile-long range you can see from Salt Lake City. And on August 20th, they could see the Great Salt Lake uh, you know, Basin. They were over a month behind schedule now. Not good. Took it, uh, almost another two weeks to get down from the mountains with all their wagons. Food supplies are, are beginning to, to run out for some of the families. Morale is plummeting. On August 25th, after losing a wagon party member to consumption, damn tuberculosis, they find another letter from Hastings. He said that there were two tough days ahead with no grass or water for the cattle. He was like, FML, bros, there's no way you make it to California alive now. I am H-O. JK, two more rough days and things get way better. Hopefully, there is a decent chance now a lot of you will die. OMG, TMI, JK, LOL, YOLO. Uh, the Donner Party rested and then set off 36 hours later. They were pot committed now, man. Too far from Fort Bridger to turn back. They had to press on despite terrible conditions. This is really not going well for them. Long before they get stuck in the snow, it's it's going horribly. By August 30th, they make it to the Great Salt Lake Desert, uh, a large dry lake north of the Great Salt Lake noted for miles and miles of barren salt flats. Things look really bad. And then things get even worse than they looked. In the heat of the day, the moisture underneath the salt crust they travel on rose to the surface and turn the soil into a gummy mass. The wheels of their wagon sank into it, in some cases up to the hubs. The days were blisteringly hot, the nights frigid. Several of the group saw visions of lakes and wagon trains, believed they'd finally overtaken Hastings. After three days, the water's gone. Some of the party removed their oxen from the wagons to press ahead to find more water. Some of the animals, so weakened, they were left yoked to the wagons and abandoned. Nine of Reed's ten oxen break free, crazed with thirst, and bolt off into the desert. That's not good. Many other families' cattle and horses are also going missing. The rigors of the journey result in irreparable damage to some of the wagons. No human lives are lost. Uh, instead of the promised two days journey over 40 miles, though, the journey, it takes uh, it's 80 miles and it takes fucking six days. What a nightmare. I've driven through salt flats, these same salt flats, and it's beyond barren. It's like a weird moonscape kind of landscape. Uh, I've seen the desert mirages they saw, too. Man, what a cruel trick to think you see water up ahead, to think you see maybe Hastings in his wagon party. Nothing. Desert mirages, by the way, occur because light bends to move through warmer, less dense air. 
uh, in the desert, refraction-caused illusions are known as inferior mirages. Superior and inferior refer to where a mirage takes place. Superior means it's above the horizon. Inferior means it's below. This is why inferior desert mirages usually show up as uh, water-like images on the ground. In the desert, the air is at its hottest near the surface and cools as it rises. This is why the light refracts downward, causing the eye to see sky-like or water-like colors below the horizon. Stupid fucking science making poor pioneers so very thirsty. None of the party had any remaining faith in the Hastings Cutoff. As they recovered to the springs on the other side of the desert, they spent several days trying to recover cattle, retrieve wagons left in the desert, Jesus, transfer their food and supplies to other wagons. They sent two party members ahead on horseback to try and reach Sutter's Fort near present-day Sacramento, which is going to be the end of their journey, uh, gather supplies, bring them back to the wagon train. Sutter's Fort had been built in 1839 with the permission of the Mexican government. Remember, this is still technically Mexican territory they're in. And is uh, the first non-American Indian settlements of, uh, of Central California. It was originally called New Switzerland by its founder, John Sutter. John would also soon build a sawmill called Sutter's Mill, very famous. Big fucking nuggets of gold would be found in Sutter's Mill. And the California gold rush of 1849 would be on like Donkey Kong. 49ers. Another possible suck someday. Uh, the remaining serviceable wagons were pulled by a mongrel team of cows, oxen, and mules. It was the middle of September. Two young men who went in uh, search of missing oxen reported that there was another 40-mile-long stretch of desert ahead of them. Fuck. I'm guessing several men punched their wagons upon hearing that. Just, God, I'm so sick of this desert! Uh, despite their hatred of Hastings by this point, they had no choice but to follow his tracks, which were now weeks old, hard to see in places. On September 26, two months after embarking on the cutoff, the Donner Party arrives at the Humboldt River, uh, river not very far from present-day Elko, Nevada, delayed by over a month. Random talent, by the way, Elko, good place to get Basque food. If you ever go through Elko, Nevada, one of the rare places in the U.S. you can get traditional Basque cuisine. So now, with their late start, I've, I've eaten there. Just random. I don't know. It's popped in my head. So now, with their late start, losing a month thanks to the shortcut. It's not a shortcut. Uh, they're a good two months behind where they should be. They're dangerously low on supplies. They rejoined the California Trail. Well, before they would get stuck in a winter storm, shit is already getting real bad for the Donner Party. There's the murder. Along the Humboldt, the group met uh, Paiute American Indians who uh, joined them for a couple days and then stole or shot several oxen and horses. Not cool, you guys. We really needed those horses and oxen, man. I thought you guys were friends. You're supposed to be my friend. Well, by now, it was well into October, and the Donner families had split off from the Reeds and others to make better time. Two wagons and lagging behind the uh, remaining group become tangled. A man named John Snyder angrily uh, beats the ox of James Reed's hired teams for Milt Elliott. When Reed intervenes, Snyder turns the whip on him. Ah, oh, shit, you're getting the whip, Reed. You're getting, you're getting whipped. How you like that? You like you like getting whipped? You like getting whipped? You like getting whipped? Reed did not like getting whipped. He retaliated by fatally plunging a uh, knife under Snyder's collarbone, kills him. Man, never bring a whip to a knife fight. Well, that evening, the witnesses gathered to discuss what's to be done. United States law is not applicable west of the Continental Divide. It was for a little while longer uh, a law. Well, it's actually still Mexican territory, but they weren't following Mexican laws. Uh, wagon trains often dispense their own justice. How crazy is that, man? They're lawless territory. No courts, no police, just the law of the trail. And some people thought it should, uh, you know, should not be legal to be able to stab someone to death if they whip you. Others thought it was fine. I feel like if you whip a grown man in lawless land, you, you get what you get. Some said Reed acted in self-defense. Others said he took things too far. And he murdered Snyder, should be hanged. Compromise is reached. He's banished from the group, which actually works out well for him since then he's able to ride on uh, to Sutter's Fort and not have to eat anybody. And uh, that would actually allow him to kind of help people that got trapped later. 
So now one of the leaders of the party has been banished for killing a man. Winter's approaching. Grass is becoming scarce. Animals are steadily weakening. To relieve the load of the animals, everyone is, is now forced to walk. Worst of all, no more notes from Hastings. Maybe, maybe he left them. Maybe they got lost. Hey, hey, guys, if you're reading this, congrats. You're still alive. LOL. Bad news. If you're reading this after Labor Day, probably not for long. Ha! ROFL, JK. But really, you need to hurry if you don't want to have to eat each other in some camons. TDYL, YOLO. Uh, October 7th, 70-year-old Belgian man known as Mr. Hardcoop can't handle the walking. And his feet become swollen and start to split open in places. And if you're not a podiatrist, if you don't know a lot about feet, this is not good. Ideally, you want not swollen, not cracked, open feet is what you would like to have for feet. Old Hardcoop sits down by a stream, unable to walk any further. Maybe gets up again, maybe not. The wagon train decides to leave him, and he's never seen again. A few days later, on October 11th, Paiute Indians kill 21 of the Donner Party's oxen. Shortly thereafter, they steal another 18 oxen, and then they wound several others. More than 100 of the party's cattle are now gone. Just damn it, you guys. Really not cool. We are definitely not friends. We're definitely not friends now. You guys ruined it. You ruined our friendship. I really wanted to keep those oxen. Now we're going to have to, now we have to eat each other. We have to eat each other, you guys. Yeah, freaking out. Then on October 13th, another murder occurs, which is, which is bad. Ideally, you'd like to have zero murders on a wagon train trail. It's not helpful. Almost uh, all his cattle dead, a German immigrant named Wolfinger stops to take apart his wagon and reduce his load for the rest of the trip. Two men, Joseph Reinhardt and Augustus Spitzer, Spitzer probably, uh, stay behind to help, but return without him saying that he has been killed by American Indians. Uh, He was not. Reinhardt will later, before dying, uh, confess to having killed him. The Donner Party on October 16th arrives at the Truckee River, a river that flows right through Reno, Nevada today. Uh, and this river will lead them into the Sierra Nevadas. Uh, everyone's walking, and, and almost all of the rations uh, everyone has brought are gone. By this point, according to one historian, to the bedraggled, half-starved members of the Donner Party, it must have seemed that the worst of their problems had passed. They had already endured more than many immigrants ever did. If only that were true. They hadn't even seen close to the worst yet. Things were going to get so much worse. Uh, it's now October 20th. The Donner Party had been told that the pass would not be snowed in until the middle of November. Faced with one last push over the mountains that were described as being much worse to get through than the Wasatch Mountains, uh, the Ragtag Company decides to, uh, you know, they decide whether to forge ahead or rest the remaining cattle a bit. Uh, they decide to let the cattle rest up for a bit, which is going to be not good for them. The party gets a bit of good news, though. On October 25th, the immigrants' uh, food almost depleted when one of two men they'd sent to Sutter's Fort, Charles Stanton, returns from Sutter's Fort near present-day Sacramento, and he brings seven mules loaded with provisions and two Miwok Indian guides, Luis and Salvador, uh, plus the news that the past this year should be open for another month. So yay, right? Another party member, William McCutcheon, uh, who had accompanied uh, him to California, is ill, and he had remained in Sutter's Fort. But the good times don't last long. On October 30th, 1846, the group prepares to celebrate Halloween. It is awesome. The kids dress up as less hungry, less depressed, less terrified children, pretending they don't actually need treats for their very survival. Everyone cries a lot. No one gets candy. Someone gets shot. It's a lot of fun. None of that happened. No. On October 30th, a man named William Foster accidentally shoots his brother-in-law, William Pike. So that part does happen. Uh, and William Pike dies a short time later while handing him a rifle. That's how he, how he gets shot accidentally. Uh, so whoops. And then as a, a terrible omen of things to come, snow falls during the, uh, during the burial of this uh, poor William Pike. 
in Truckee Canyon, a little north of Lake Tahoe. It's come weeks earlier, while they are still weeks away from making it to the west side of the mountains. Snow continues to fall on Halloween, and during the first week of November, one family, the Breens, makes it up to Truckee Lake, now known as Donner Lake, camps near a cabin that has been built two years earlier by another group of pioneers. They're now 6,000 feet above sea level, and winter is beginning to set in. This is bad, bad, bad. Weather can get rough so fast once you're a mile or more above sea level. You know, again, the famine ice, you know, we camped at Bridge Bay on Yellowstone Lake, and that's just over 7,700 feet in elevation, and shit got crazy in a hurry there. Uh, can that high in the mountains, man. The weather can change so fast. We almost got snowed, uh, snowed on ourselves the last day of June. The temperature dropped to 36 degrees overnight. We got hailed on. Uh, it would hail hard for like an hour and then suddenly stop, be sunny 10 minutes later. And then again, this is the end of June. I went on the lake once on the boat. We got trapped in a crazy hailstorm on the boat, and then it was sunny 30 minutes later. And that's June again. In October, forget it. It can pound snow on you in September at that altitude, that far up on the continent, right? When the snow started to fall in the Donner Party in October, some of them had to have known they were fucked. Uh, two other families, Yetis and the Keysbergs, attempt to make it over what is now known as Donner's Pass, but they find five to ten foot drifts of snow. Five to ten feet of snow. No way you're getting a wagon through that or a horse or yourself without modern snow gear. Any sign of a trail has been buried until spring, and they, they turn back for Truckee Lake, knowing that if they didn't, uh, they'd freeze to death where they stood. Within a day, all the families were camped there except for the Donners, who were five miles below them, half a day's journey. The Donners would remain a half mile down for the remainder of the hellish winter. And I guess you could get through because they did if you had uh, actual, actual like, you know, gear built for that kind of snow, you know, properly made stuff, which they didn't pack with them. Um, 60 members and associates of the Breen Graves, Reed, Murphy, Keysburg, and Eddie families set up for the winter at Truckee Lake. Uh, three widely separated cabins of pine logs served as their homes with dirt floors, poorly constructed flat leaky roofs. Uh, the families used canvas or oxide to patch the faulty roofs. The cabins had no windows, no doors, just large holes to allow entry. Uh, of the 60 at Truckee Lake, 19 are men over 18, 12 are women, 29 are kids, six of whom toddlers are younger. Farther down the trail, the rest of the Donner Party is, is camped close to Alder Creek. Uh, where they construct uh, tents to house the remaining uh, party members. You know, Alder Camp, man, another place atrocities would occur. On November 4th, it begins to snow nonstop, the beginning of a storm that would last for eight straight days. This is after finding those five to ten feet uh, deep snowdrifts. I'm guessing most of the pioneers just started to cry a lot and shit themselves at this point. Uh, by the time the party made camp, very little food remained from the supplies that Stan had brought back from Sutter's Fort. The oxen began to die. Their carcasses are frozen and stacked. Truckee Lake is not yet frozen, but the pioneers don't know how to catch the lake trout that are living there, which I get. Man, I was on a boat with new fishing poles and just about every lure you can buy, and me and two other experienced fishermen struck out all day at Lake Yellowstone. Fucking stingy cutthroats. Uh, one man managed to kill a black bear, but that was it. Uh, I came way too close to a black bear this past Friday in Yellowstone. Seriously, like an asshole, I got out of my truck uh, against Lindsay, Lindsay and the kids' better judgment, by the way, because I wanted a closer look at a black bear off side of the road. Took a few pics, took some video, jogged back to my truck. When I got back, spotted a second black bear in my driver's <laughs> side rearview mirror. Uh, son of a bitch was standing exactly where I had been standing about five seconds earlier. I shit you not. I had my back to him. He must have been on the other side of the road behind me, just in the brush. If he would have been a grizzly, I would have easily just won a Darwin Award this past weekend. I would have been dead, and I would have been, you know, justice would have been served. Forest justice. Fuck idiots of the internet. I would have been the idiot of the year. Uh, desperation grows in camp. Some people reason that individuals might succeed at navigating the pass where the wagons could not. You know, after traveling some over 2,000 miles, man, they're less than 150 miles from Sutter's Fort. That's part of the tragedy of this. They were so close to their destination. They almost made it. Uh, today, 
Uh, you can drive on I-80 from Donner's Pass to Sacramento, and it's only 93 miles via the freeway. On November 12th, it stops snowing, and a small party tries to reach the summit on foot, but the powder is too deep, too difficult to get through. They return that same evening. Over the next week, two more attempts are made by other smaller parties, both quickly failing. On November 21st, a large party of about 22 people do make it through the pass, but they get stuck a mile and a half on the other side. They give up, and they have to head back. Life at the winter camp at Truckee Lake, now Donner Lake, and then the Alder Camp is beyond miserable. Uh, life at the, at the Donner Lake, the camps are cramped and filthy. It snowed so much that people are unable to go outdoors for days. They have to dig themselves out. Diets soon consist of ox hides, strips, which are boiled to make a disagreeable glue-like jelly. Ox and horse bones are boiled so many times to make soup that the bones become brittle enough for them to crumble and eat, uh, be able to eat. They chew up a horse bone. Uh, sometimes uh, they would soften the bones. They would char them before they would eat them. Uh, bit by bit, one family's kids uh, start picking apart the ox hide rug laying in front of the fireplace, and they roast it in the fire, and they eat it. That's when you're hungry. That's when you're really hungry is when you decide to eat a rug. That is a level of hunger I, I have never felt, and I hope I never feel. How would, a, how would a rug even provide you with any nutrition? I don't think it does. Why not just eat dirt at that point? Just start eating the wood of the cabin. Just cut off your hair. Eat that. Just shit in your hand and eat it. Just eat anything that isn't sharp or poisonous that will kill you. Uh, families start to catch and eat mice that stray into their cabins. Many become too weak to get out of bed. Occasionally, someone's uh, able to make it the, the, the full-day trek now to see the Donners who are stuck in their camp. News uh, come back that Jacob Donner and three of the, his hired men have died. One of them is the man who, who confessed on his deathbed that he murdered that Wolfinger guy. Uh, George Donner's hand, injured days earlier while repairing his wagon, uh, his wagon, has become infected with gangrene. He's not doing well. On December 16th, 17 of the most able-bodied pioneers, some kids, uh, leave camp on snowshoes they constructed from oxhide and whatever else they could f- gather. Their group would become known as the Forlorn Hope. So you know shit is not going to go well for them. A few members of the party are now actively dying from malnutrition, which is probably what happens when you start trying to live on boiled rug. I'm not totally familiar with the whole food pyramid, but I do know that boiled rug is for sure not on it. Uh, the group is more desperate than ever. Every member of the snowshoe party is able to scrape up six days worth of starvation rations, which are the worst kind of rations. And here's your daily ration. Uh, what? This is only one saltine cracker and half a blueberry. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot to explain. This is your starvation ration, which means you can eat it, but you will still starve. Uh, the members of the party are malnourished, unaccustomed to camping in snow 12 feet deep at this point. By the third day, most are snowblind. This is forlorn hope. Forlorn hope. Excuse me. Uh, snow blindness, by the way, is a temporary dimming of sight caused by the glare of reflected sunlight on the snow. Never had it, but I've, I've heard of it. Uh, so now they're starving, freezing, and they can't see, which is awesome. But they press on. December 21st, a man named Stanton remains behind, uh, saying that he will follow the rest shortly. His remains are then found in that location the following year. So it turns out he was a liar. Nah, he, didn't, he wasn't planning on following anyone. He's going to sit and die. Around Christmas time, the forlorn, horp, forlorn hope, that's a tongue twister, man. If you're a mushmouth, it is. The forlorn hope group becomes lost and confused. They've exhausted their rations. After two more days without food, one member, Patrick Dolan, Poses that some of them should volunteer to die in order to feed the others. Some suggest they duel to see who dies. Fucking death duel. That's, well, another account uh, describes an attempt to create a lottery to choose a member to sacrifice. Man, man, they, they were considering fight, fighting to not be eaten in the snow. It's crazy times. Turns out they don't need to duel. They don't need a lottery. A blizzard hits. Two men die anyway. As the blizzard progresses, Patrick Dolan loses his fucking mind. Strips off his clothes, runs into the woods. Runs out of the woods naked. 
He returns a short time later, and he's dead within a few hours, which is what happens when you run naked into freezing woods. Uh, and then the first guy to advocate cannibalism, ironically, becomes the first meal of human flesh to be eaten by the, uh, the Donner crew. Possibly because 12-year-old Lamel, Lemuel Murphy was near death himself, some members of the group began to eat flesh from Dolan's body. Lemuel's sister tries to feed him a bit of Patrick, but it's too late. He doesn't, he doesn't want to eat Patrick. He's, he dies anyway. Three of the snowshoers uh, refused to eat him, including the two American Indians that came back from Sutter's uh, fort. The next morning, the group strips the muscle and organs from the bodies of four dead men, and they dry it to store it for the days ahead, taking care to ensure that nobody has to eat his or her relatives. Fuck. God, man. Drying out human meat to eat later. That's so gross. For pioneers, drying usually involves salting slices of meat, then laying the meat slices out for two weeks before placing it in brine for a further three weeks, after which the slices would be dried with the cloth, hung in a cool, dry place away from flies. I doubt the snowshoers had brine. Guessing they, they maybe brought some salt to salt any meat, you know, from some game they killed. And so they would just have to dress out a human like they would a deer. Man, what a terrible job that would be. Cutting the meat off human bones, roasting it over a campfire later. Or was anyone so hungry they just ate it raw? You know? How, how chewy would that be? A little human sashimi. Imagine right now, you're sitting in an office somewhere. You're around other people in traffic. Imagine just slicing one of them up, roasting them up, eating them. That's what these poor bastards had to do. And, uh, and, and I'm, and I'm going to take a different look now at cannibalism by peeking into today's Idiots of the Internet. Idiots of the Internet. All right. For today's Idiots of the Internet, I, uh, I peeked at a few little portions, the ones that haven't been pulled down recently, of a Rick Burns documentary on the Donner Party. The first uh, couple comments are from part eight of, uh, of the YouTube videos of this. And these first two comments are not idiotic. <laughs> With my messed up humor, I just, I just thought they were funny, and I'm guessing uh, some of you might think they're funny as well. Uh, user Brian Foreman posted, Caseberg was gnawing on a leg bone when they found him. He had a huge belly and couldn't stop belching. His first words to the search party were, what took you so long? Then he asked them if they had brought any steak sauce with them. This just made me laugh because of the, the, the language. Thank, thank you, Brian. I like the notes of him having a huge belly and how he couldn't stop burping. That, that really paints a picture, man. Not, and not just eating a leg either. Gnawing on it. What a great word. Gnawing. Gnawing paints a totally different picture than eating or chewing. Like with gnawing, I pictured there's little chunks of food in his beard, little chunks of flesh in his beard. He's wild-eyed. He's not just he's not just chewing it. He's attacking that leg with his with his mouth just almost randomly like a like he's feral, scraping the bones you know with his teeth like a fucking animal. Really paints a picture. User uh, Hecho sixty eight had another one I liked. Uh, he posted the Green family had a stash of lemon pepper a one a one sauce and Cattleman's Illinois smoky barbecue sauce. That's why they had no problem eating the flesh off their party, especially the ribs. I want my baby back, baby back, baby back, baby back, baby back ribs. Again, again, I love the details. Somebody else replied under it like, real mature. I, I thought it was funny. No lazy writing there, man. Not just barbecue sauce. Cattleman's Illinois smoky barbecue sauce. It's the details. Not just pepper, lemon pepper. Right? This, these details really make, it, make this family seem like they were cannibal connoisseurs. They're, they're not just eating human flesh. They're enjoying it. They're savoring every bite. Cooking it with some pride. You know, I picture the dad holed up in that cabin wearing some kind of family grill master barbecue bib. You know, maybe says something like, stand back, everybody. I'm busy grilling somebody. Uh, in the next video, we get, we get the dumb shit. This is part nine of the daughter, daughter party, that, that, uh, that, that documentary from, uh, from Rick Burns. 
Uh, Elboyd926 posts, didn't mean to thumb that down. This is, has nothing to do with the Donner Party. It just, it just cracks me up, right? Like he accidentally clicked he, the thumb down button on the video, and then instead of just clicking it again to erase it, he has to post. I, sorry, I, I didn't mean to do that. It's okay. It's okay, Elboy. We all make mistakes. Most of us just try and correct them instead of just explaining to strangers why, why we did something that uh, they may not care for and then, and then not correcting it. Uh, user Carla Thompson leaves about 10 comments in a row. She has a lot to say about the Donners, uh, none of it very intelligent. Here's some of it. She says, uh, and there's, it's hard to read this because the spelling is a little crazy. It is morally wrong to kill people for food. But keep in mind, some of these people went insane, may not have been thinking logically to realize it is immoral. Thanks for the clarification, Captain Obvious. <laughs> I like that. It is bad to eat people if you, don't, if you haven't heard. However, if you are starving and not thinking straight, not as bad to eat people. There's, it's not as bad as other people eating uh, situations, if you, if you don't know. Uh, brilliant. Brilliant, Carla. Carla also adds, I wouldn't call the plight of the Donner Party a fairy tale by any means. Uh, yeah. I don't think anyone has literally ever thought of their trip as a fairy tale, Carla. Why, why would you feel compelled to say that? That, that goes without saying applies to that very much. That, that goes without saying is the understatement of the year when applied to that. No one in the video comments has alluded to Donner Party's Donner Party trip west being anything other than horrific. It is, yeah, it is clearly not a fairy tale. Look, everyone, it's no fairy tale being eaten. Someone had to say it. Some of you probably think it's a fairy tale to be trapped in the winter woods and be eaten alive, but it's not a fairy tale at all. Uh, then Carla leaves several posts about how it was not good what settlers did, settlers and just pioneers and Americans in general, did to American Indians. However, she makes a point uh, that the American Indians <laughs> gave settlers STDs, and that makes it kind of even. What? You know, like we took your land and killed a lot of your people and ruined your culture, but you did give us a rash on our wings. So kind of even Stephen. Uh, Carla says at one point, their knowledge as well as the natives were, were limited when it came to diseases, it's unfortunate things happen, but they do when cultures come in contact with each other. I sympathize with natives, but I also sympathize with settlers. Their lives were not easy, at worst treacherous, at every turn on Oregon Trail. They also gave settlers some nasty, life-threatening venereal diseases. Uh, th this odd post did make me look into this, uh, and I found out that syphilis, the nasty disease that ravaged London in the Jack the Ripper episode, may have been brought back to Europe by Columbus, and he may have, him and his crew, picked it up from having sex with American Indians. Uh, it did first show up in Europe in 1495, which is curious timing, you know, three years after his expedition finds new, uh, the new world. However, what is overlooked here is consent. I would bring that up. Did the natives give STDs to early explorers, or were STDs taken from them when the native women were raped? Uh, not sure. All those native women were just, were just happy to bed these explorers the second they hit the beach. Uh, finally, the user Mad Hatter posts expectedly insanity, saying, Once you eat human flesh, you lose your soul. I love it when people post nonsense as fact. You know you actually lose your soul when you eat someone, right? Yep, scientists have figured it out. The second you take one bite of anyone, your soul slips away right down to hell. We've known that since the Mike Tyson-Evander Holyfield fight on June 28, 1997. If you watch the replay, you can see Tyson's soul go slip under the ring right after taking a bite of Holyfield's ear. Fact. Idiots of the internet. All right, back to the Donner timeline. Just in time for Christmas. The holidays are getting a little better for those still camped at Donner Lake. Margaret Reed 
wife of the banished James Reed, managed to save enough food for her kids to uh, make a pot of soup to the delight of her children on Christmas. But by January, they were facing starvation and considered eating the ox hides that served as their roof. Right? Some people have already eaten the rug. They're thinking about eating the roof. Uh, Margaret Reed, Virginia, Milt Elliott, uh, some servant girl named Eliza Williams attempted to walk out, reasoning it would be better to try and bring food back than just sit and watch children starve. Uh, and they actually do leave for four days, but then they have to turn back. Uh, the new year doesn't, doesn't treat the snowshoeing party very well. The snowshoers kept moving, and after a few days, right, they'd eaten all the meat they'd taken from those four dead men. They began to take apart their snowshoes, eat the oxhide webbing. They're eating their shoes now. They're eating their shoes, and then they discussed killing the two Miwok American Indians along with them, the only two living members of the snowshoers who had declined to eat human flesh up until this point, by the way. But then another party member uh, dies during the night, uh, Luis and Salvador. Uh, the Miwoks, they hear from one of the members uh, that they are con- being <laughs> – the, the, the guys are considering to eat them, and they, and they run off in fear for their lives. Two other members take off to hunt the next day. When they return with deer meat, the man who died the night before is already being cut up and eaten. Uh, January 10th, uh, the few remaining snowshoers come across Salvador and, and Luis, uh, the Miwoks, who had not eaten for about nine days at this point. They're close to death. A man named William Foster shoots the pair, believing that their flesh was the group's last hope of avoiding imminent death from starvation. Those would be the only two members of the Donner Party who would be murdered to be eaten. The rest are believed to have died naturally, although others could have easily been murdered, and just no one confessed to it. On January 12th, the group stumbles into a Miwok camp looking so deteriorated, they scare the shit out of the camp's inhabitants who initially fled in fear when they saw these fucking zombies walking into their camp. Then the Miwoks uh, gave them what they had to eat, gave them acorns, grass, and pine nuts, guessing that the uh, pioneers did not mention to anyone in the camp that they'd recently eaten. A few of these people's fellow tribe members, you know, there was probably no, uh, man, these are good pine nuts, hot damn. Really wish I had some uh, had some Salvador to go. Da- oh, uh, oh, this is this is terribly awkward. After a few days, one of the seven remaining members of the Forlorn Hope Party, William Eddy, continues on with the help of the Miwok to a ranch in a small farming community at the edge of the Sacramento Valley. So one of these sons of bitches actually makes it out with his party, and then they uh, quickly assemble a rescue party, and they and they get the other six survivors of the Forlorn Hope Party on January seventeenth. Their journey from Truckee Lake had taken thirty three days. And they'd had to eat several people in order to do it. Uh, The following month, on February 18th, seven members of an initial rescue party organized by William Eddy make it back to Donner's Lake. When they arrive, one Donner Party member uh, named Mrs. Murphy appears from, quote, appears from a hole in the snow. The cabins had been completely buried. She stares at them and asks, are you men from California or do you come from heaven? That's when you know you lost your goddamn mind. When you don't know if people from California or heaven, the relief party doles out food in small portions, concerned that they might kill the emaciated people that they're rescuing if they overeat. Sodden oxide roofs had begun to rot. The smell was, quote, overpowering. Thirteen people were dead and their bodies had begun loosely buried, had been loosely buried in the snow near the cabin roofs. Fuck, man. Three of the rescue party trekked to the Donners and brought back four gaunt children and three adults. The infection in George Donner's hand had spread to his arm. The arm is so gangrenous, he can't move. It must be in a tremendous amount of pain. 23 people were chosen to go back with this rescue party, including the wife of James Reed, Margaret, leaving 21 in the cabins at Truckee slash Donner Lake and another 12 at Alder Creek where the Donners are. Two die on the way to Sutter's Fort from this, uh, from this group. On the way, they run into a second rescue group that's heading back to Donner's Pass, this one led by the previously banished James Reed. Margaret, his wife, collapses in the snow and weeps upon hearing her husband's voice. 
March 1st, second rescue party makes it to winter camp on Donner's Lake. Incredibly, no one had died during the interim between the departure of the first relief party and the arrival of the second relief party. Unfortunately, this was mostly because they started eating the people who died before the first rescuers reached the camp. The first two members of the relief party to reach the Donner camp a little ways past the lake. This is what they see. They're walking They're walking to the, uh, you know, the, uh, the Donner camp. And they see some son of a bitch carrying a human leg. When they make their presence known, he throws into a hole in the snow that contained the mostly dismembered body of Jacob Donner. So that's down by the Alder camp. Camp. That's what they see when they walk up. Just, ah, no, nothing. Hey, hey, ha, hey, guys. I know, I know this looks bad. Damn foxes. I mean, wolves. I mean, fox wolves keep eating our dead. So I, I, I was just taking back a leg from one of them and putting it with the rest of the body until we gave him a proper burial later. Uh, uh-huh. So how do you explain the specks of leg meat in your beard? I <laughs> just, you know, fox, fucking fox wolves. I don't know. <laughs> uh, inside the tent, Elizabeth Donner has refused to eat, although her children are being nourished now by the organs of their father. Yep. Yep. And these kids would live. They would have to live with the memory of eating their own father. The rescuers discovered that three other bodies had already been consumed. Motherfuck. In the other tent, George's infection, his gangrenous infection, had now reached his shoulder. His whole arm up to his shoulder is gangrenous. His wife, Tamsin, still well at this point, but insists on remaining with her husband. They want her to leave. She will not. The second relief party evacuates 17 members, all but three are kids. They get caught in a blizzard on the way back. One child freezes to death. Uh, one of the Donner girls' feet are so badly, or, or, or excuse me, are badly burned because they're so frostbitten. And when she fell asleep, she didn't even realize her feet are in the fire. Uh, the relief party ended up splitting up in the, in the blizzard. And the chaos that would follow, two additional children would end up being eaten. Their mutilated remains would be found later in the snow. Man, how much does that suck, man? The rescue party rescued you from a camp where people are being eaten. And you just end up getting eaten anyway when your rescue party gets stuck in a fucking blizzard. A third rescue party reaches the camp on March 14th. George and Tamsin are still alive. But George is still too sick to travel. And Tamsin is still refusing to leave her husband. Four children are rescued by this third rescue party. On April 10th, a fourth rescue party arrives to find George Donner dead. Tamsin is not in the tent with him. On their way back to Truckee Lake, the rescuers find the last living member of the Donner party, a man named Louis Kiesberg, and he tells them what happened to Tamsin. I'll give you a hint. She gets eaten. Louis Kiesberg was born in Germany on 20, May 22nd, 1814. He's married on June 22nd, 1842. Two years later, immigrated to the United States. Few years after that, joins the Donner Party with his wife and two young kids. And according to Lewis, Tamsin Donner arrived at his cabin on her way over the pass, soaked and visibly upset. Lewis said that he put a blanket around her, told her to start out in the morning. She died during the night. Uh, no. The salvage party or, you know, the rescue party, they were suspicious of Keesburg's story. They found a pot full of human flesh, a, quote, pot full of human flesh in the cabin along with George Donner's pistols, jewelry, and $250 in gold. They threatened to lynch him, and then he confessed that he'd hidden $273 of the Donner's money at Tamsin's suggestion so that he could find it and, and benefit her children. And then she died in the night, and once she was dead, yes, he ate her. And apparently they bought this story. Uh, kind of, you know. They, they, this would get a little more complicated later. She could have easily died naturally, or he could have killed her and eaten her. We'll never know for sure. On April 29th, 1847, Keesburg was the last member of the Donner Party to make it to Sutter's Fort. And later on, no shit, he would open a restaurant in Sacramento. Uh, 86 sellers followed George Donner across the Great Salt Lake, across Hastings Cutoff. Out of the 87 members of the Donner Party, only 48 would make it to California. Well, would, would make it to the, to the end of their California journey. It was the worst disaster in U.S. wagon train history. 
And that takes us out of today's Time Suck Timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. The story of the Donner Party disaster reached all the way back to New York City by the summer of 1847. Counts of the cannibalism were greatly sensationalized. The story ran across the nation. Incredibly, uh, uh, the dude who was banished, uh, James Reed, the guy who stabbed the dude who whipped him, he never lost a single family member, except for his mother-in-law, you know, at the start of the, uh, the journey. Other than that, all the Reeds made it west. Uh, the remaining Donner children, both George and Jacob's children, were orphaned. The Donners lost all adult family members, and four of their children died. Uh, the party's animals fared even worse. Only three mules made it out west. All the oxen, horses, and other animals died. Various families had brought their dogs out west as well. They all died. Many were eaten. The Reeds did adopt two of the Donner children. So that's nice. Uh, many of the widows who made it out remarried quickly. Women were in short supply out west. Some of them married before summer hit. Uh, the youngest of the Donner children, three-year-old Eliza, would publish an account of what happened that winter in 1911. One young traveler, Nancy Graves, was nine years old during the winter of 1846-1847. She refused to acknowledge her involvement, even when contacted by historians interested in recording the most accurate version of the tale. She reportedly was unable to recover from her role in the cannibalism of her brother and mother. She had to eat her brother and her mom. Blech. Louis Kiesberg, uh, the guy who probably ate Tamsin Donner, he brought a defamation—well, did eat her, but may have killed her—brought a defamation suit against several members of the release par uh, party who did accuse him of murdering Tamsin Donner. The court awarded him a dollar in damages, uh, also made him pay court costs. So you can tell the, the court probably was a little suspicious that he may have done it. In 1847, story printed in the California Star described Kiesberg's actions in ghoulish terms and, uh, and his near lynching by the salvage party. Reported, uh, they reported that he preferred eating human flesh over the cattle and horses and uh, that had become exposed in the spring thaw. Historian Charles, Charles McGlashan amassed enough material to indict Kiesberg for the murder of Tamsin Donner, but then he interviewed him, and then he concluded that he didn't think a murder had occurred. As Kiesberg grew older, he became a hermit, kept to himself, uh, guess some business wasn't too good at his restaurant. Uh, probably didn't have finger steaks on the menu. He became a social pariah, was routinely threatened. He told McGlashan, I often think that the Almighty has singled me out among all the men on the face of the earth in order to see how much hardship, suffering, and misery a human can bear. Uh, there's now a memorial to where the camp was uh, trapped for the winter, the Donner Memorial State Park. The top of the 22-foot-tall pedestal indicates how deep the snow was when rescue parties arrived. 22 feet deep. What a nightmare. Amazing that anyone made it out alive. Amazing that they were able to be rescued. Of those who, who died in the Donner Party, 34 died that winter. And what did we learn this episode outside of some history? Well, I think we learned that some people will eat another person just to save themselves, and others, others, you know, won't. What kind of person are you? Are you the kind that would eat somebody <laughs> to survive or not? Or would you rather die? I think I would do it. I think if someone was already dead, especially someone I didn't know well, I think I could do it. If it was my immediate family, I don't think I could. I couldn't eat my kids. I couldn't eat Lindsay. I don't think I could eat my doodles. Uh, I don't think I could eat my parents. <laughs> I couldn't eat my parents or grandparents. I don't think I might, I don't think I could eat my sister or nieces, nephew, that kind of stuff. I feel like I have a few cousins I could eat. I could eat a few of my neighbors. Uh, there's some people at the gym I could definitely eat. Uh, some strangers for sure. For some reason, I picture myself eating a, a ideally a ginger. Why is that? Maybe because I you know I enjoy poultry and maybe their white skin reminds me of poultry meat. But that's that doesn't make sense because I think I think our meat would be more like beef. Yeah, it would. You know, so I guess the person's color doesn't matter. Someone lean, 
That's my preference. I like a lean steak. I like a, like a filet mignon. I don't like a fatty steak. I would like somebody lean and muscular. I picture them having, you know, more steak, maybe like a like Serena Williams. <laughs> she looks tasty to me. Is that weird to say? Tom Hardy. The actor Tom Hardy. He looks, I don't know, maybe he's just so manly. He looks, I feel like he would make a tasty steak. Is that weird? I'm, I'm going to stop now. Who would you eat? Discuss amongst yourselves. It's now time for Top 5 Takeaways. Time suck. Top 5 Takeaways. Number one. The Donner Party ended up getting stuck in the Sierra Nevadas, mainly for two reasons. They left a month later than they should have, and they took uh, the Hastings Cutoff, which turned out to be the opposite of shortcut. Hastings route alone cost them at least 18 days. Number two, bad luck regarding weather also doomed the Donners. There was a total of 10 major storm periods during the winter of 1846-1847, beginning on October 16, 1846, ending in early April 1847, and they created over 20 feet of snow. Number three, James Reed was able to help organize rescue parties to save his family because he made it to Sutter's Fort because he stabbed a dude who whipped him, proving that sometimes it does pay to stab somebody. Number four, of the 87 members of the Donner Party, only 48 survived to reach the uh, end route, end of the journey, excuse me, in California. Many of them, uh, you know, had to eat the dead to survive. Number five, new info, future president Abraham Lincoln damn near ended up in the Donner Party. I'm serious. While working as a lawyer in Springfield, Illinois, Abraham Lincoln continued his friendship with James Reed. We talked about how they had met years before when they were messmates in the Black Hawk War. Well, when Reed's businesses uh, began to fail due to a national economic downturn, Lincoln counseled his friend. And just before the wagon caravan departed for the West, Lincoln helped Reed through bankruptcy proceedings, helped him uh, stash enough uh, money you know, stashing enough cash away that he was able to purchase land in California. And many years after the Donner Party tragedy, one of Reed's daughters revealed that Abraham Lincoln seriously considered joining the caravan, but in the end didn't go due to opposition from his wife. Instead, he entered politics. Kind of worked out for him. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The Donner Party sucked. And I just realized that Politics kind of worked out, but didn't work out for Abraham Lincoln because he was assassinated. So I guess, yeah, poor son of a bitch. He was doomed to probably either starve or get shot. Uh, but yeah, the Donner Party, man, a better, ugh, uh, getting sucked. Get, ugh. Think, think, think about, you know, them. Think about the Donner Party whenever you have a bad travel experience going forward. You know, maybe it's not going well, but is it going Donner Party bad? Have you had to eat a fellow traveler? No, then it could be a lot worse. Uh, big thanks to the Time Suck team, Harmony Velikamp, Jesse Dobner, Reverend Dr. Joe. Yes, Joe, not Josh. More on that down the road. I'll, I'll give Joe a proper introduction. Uh, thanks to Alex Dugan, the Bit Elixir team, Danger Brain, Eric Radiker, Queen of the Suck, Lindsey Cummins. Enjoy that Danger Brain Chikatila Summer Camp merch. I hope you really like it. Again, it's limited edition. When it's gone, it's gone. Huge thanks to OG Bojangles Research Team members, the Lily Twins. Pointed me in the right directions for today's suck. Uh, if you want to meet some fellow time suckers, head to the private Facebook group while we still work on getting our own private message board on the website and the app. Uh, the Time Sucker private Facebook uh, uh, group link will be in today's episode description. Next week, we head south uh, right around the same time frame, a little bit later. Pancho Villa gets sucked. Who's Pancho? A famed Mexican revolutionary and guerrilla leader. Villa killed more than 30 Americans in a pair of attacks in 1916. Whoops. And that drew the deployment of a U.S. military expedition into Mexico. That hunted him during an 11-month manhunt, but didn't find him. And then he was pardoned by Mexican President Adolfo de la Huerta in 1920. And Villa retired to live a quiet life at his ranch. And he did live a quiet life until he was murdered. And there's so much more to his story. And I don't know much about it. 
I don't know shit about Pancho Villa, but I'm excited to learn this next week. We're going to tell a good tale. And now it's time for Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. First up, a plea for help that I couldn't ignore. From Time Sucker and Space Lizard, Jamie Bryce. Hey, Dan, the man of many titles, including but not limited to Reverend Doctor, Suck Master General, and Suck Dungeon Master, and quite possibly my spirit animal. Yeah. I was writing to ask you to do the unthinkable. I hate myself already, and I haven't even asked yet. I'm only doing this because you are in the very unique position of being quite possibly the only one who can help. My lady and I are huge fans in Space Lizards. I've been a fan of your stand-up for years, but didn't know about the suck until a few months ago, courtesy of my gal. Anyway... She and I have recently got, uh, gotten together after years of never thinking it would happen. There were so many obstacles that it seems insane to me that it's actually happening. Well, it was happening until very recently. Uh, we had a very stupid argument stemming from a deep-rooted insecurity and untreated mental issues I have been struggling with for years. Speaking of which, thank you for the compassion you show people like me in the suck. It means more than you know. My lady never misses an episode, so if you can find it in your heart, would you consider delivering a message to her via the suck? I'm doing it. We have tickets to see you in Dayton. On July 28th, 10 o'clock show, if we don't patch things up, I'll be going alone, and I probably won't be in a laughing mood. So it's really in your best interest to help me out. So on the off chance that you might actually do what I'm asking, I know it's a big ask. This is the message. Pam, if you're listening, Jim is sorry for being an asshole wackadoodle. Let's go back to Narnia. You can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. C.S. Lewis. I know we're the literal worst. Her name is actually Mallory, and I'm Jamie, but yeah, we call ourselves Jim and Pam. Obviously big Office fans, too. I know doing this would risk making you look like uh, Delilah or something, but it would mean the world to me and uh, just might salvage a relationship. Our future children would owe you their lives. Thank you for being out there and suck as long and hard as you can. Stay curious, a fan for life, Jamie Bryce. Well, Jamie, Jim, I hope you and Mallory Pam are talking. If not, I hope this gets you talking. Give him a call, Mallory Pam. Not many guys reach out like this, you know? Sounds like, uh, sounds like he really loves you. I don't know the details of the relationship. Sounds like it's new in a, in a non-platonic sense. I don't know what Jamie Jim to upset you, but, uh, you know, uh, love doesn't come easy all the time. So, so give, it, give him a chance. Hear him out. Good luck, you two. See one of you or both of you in Dayton, and I uh, expect you to name one of your kids either Kyler, Monroe, uh, Bojangles, or Nimrod. <laughs> Not really. Okay, fellow Mushmouth, Melissa Fry wrote in saying, Dear Master of Suck, I bow to your greatness. That's too much. I love it. I like you. Also suffer from Mushmouth as well as pronouncing many words wrong. I have picked up your habit of looking up pronunciations especially local news stations to pronounce cities, and it has saved me so much teasing. I just wanted you to know that you are not alone and that I appreciate you. You spread so much knowledge uh, about so much more than just what you present from your research. I love your podcast so much. It makes my week. Keep sucking. You're suck forever. Much love. And hail Nimrod, Melissa Fry. Well, hail Nimrod, fellow mushmouth. I'm glad to know you're out there. Glad to know you care. Yeah, you know what? It's cool to improve in little ways. This, uh, this has definitely helped me look things up, too. And you, know, and, I, and, I, and you don't have to get too worried about it. You know, people tease, whatever, let them tease. But it's good that, uh, it's good that you're looking, looking some stuff up and feeling better. And, and now we'll end with a sort of idiots of the, idiot, yeah, idiots of the internet excuse me, update from the Great Courses Plus digital marketing manager and time sucker. That's how we got that uh, sponsorship. Julie Stoltz. Julie and I have been writing back and forth about some stuff she found, some craziness. Underneath a great uh, Courses Plus Facebook post, for real. And so I'm just gonna, I'm just digging into it now. I'm pulling up the Facebook as I'm talking to you guys and because uh, it is crazy. So the, this one Facebook post, it says, debate. This is June 29th, 7 a.m. on the Great Courses Facebook page. It says, debate. There are a lot of conspiracy theories one can find on the internet these days. Does the modern age and technology make global conspiracies more or less feasible? Comment below and then think critically. 
with Professor Stephen Novella to examine both the compelling nature of conspiracy thinking and ways to determine which theories are true and which are just pseudoscience. Take a deep dive into critical thinking with the great courses. So, so that's what they put. Um, then, you know, some people say some nice stuff like Sally Goldsmith is, this sounds intriguing. Just who is behind this course? Hmm? LOL. Oh, okay. So she thinks <laughs> it's the great courses providing conspiracy. They're part of the Illuminati. The great courses comes back with, uh, we're a private company based in Chantilly, Virginia. You can learn all about us here. So, you know, trying to be like full disclosure. Um, oh my gosh. And then instead of teaching conspiracy theories, why not teach real history? It is what it is, says Carol Fate. Uh, okay. And then Great Course says, we're not teaching the conspiracy theories. We're teaching critical thinking. If you got to the bottom of the post, you would have noticed the link to your deceptive mind, a course specific to learning critical thinking. <laughs> I'm just trying to be, oh, man, uh, just trying to be rational. And then the comments. I, oh, and then Paul Geimer says, I can't comment. They're watching me. And then uh, somebody with letters I don't even know what the fuck they are says, our concepts of time and chronology are wrong. Technology has always existed. The fact that most people cannot tell you how their devices work but think they're advanced is a conspiracy. John Merritt says, it all depends. Everything being smoke and mirrors with technology and betting specific plans could actually become more feasible depending on its sector specific. Oh, man. Uh, Tanya, God's girl, I'm guess, uh, is a little bit nutty considering she goes all caps, which is never a good sign. She says it shows more evidence so that one can make up their own minds. And to me, it is only further shows the truth altogether, but there's more to come and it's going to be right in our faces to see not on social media to wonder. So I say, fasten your seatbelts. The ride's about to take a horrible turn for the worse for the entire human race. And it's already begun new world order. You know what's sad about this? These are posts on the great course. Like these are people who have taken the time to find the great courses and they're still this fucking dumb. God damn it. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so be afraid. Be afraid of what's going on in the world. Be glad that you're not part of the problem. Thank you for not being idiots to the internet. And uh, thanks for the time sucker updates. Thanks, Julie. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. And that's all for this week, time suckers. Enjoy your 4th July. Grill up some meat. Just don't let it be human meat. And keep on sucking. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work. Tasks are taking forever to complete and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. 
manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.